Hey, and welcome everyone to the Rumcast. We are a new podcast that helps you to navigate the world of rum by talking about all things rum related with the people who love it. I'm John Gullah, one of your hosts, and we have Will Hookinga, your other host. What's up, Will? Hey, John, how's it going? I'm so excited that we're finally getting this conversation out for everyone to enjoy because it was one of those interviews that we did. And at the end of it, we were both just like texting each other like, man, that was yeah. <laughs> that was such a fun conversation. So I can't wait for people to hear this. It's, yeah. It was really was really fun interview and really had fun doing it. Yeah, so we talked to Maggie Campbell, who is the president and head distiller at Privateer Rum in Ipswich, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if you're into rum, you, you've, you're probably familiar with Privateer. Uh, they've, they've really kind of made a name for themselves over the past few years, uh, not just as something that's known as, as a, a really great American rum, but just mm-hmm. uh, a rum that's a, a good rum in general from anywhere. So, yeah. um, and that's something that's, that's, you know, not easy to do for uh, a category that's still really new um, compared to the rest of the world. So, um, you know, Maggie is is not only a super talented maker of spirits, but also, you know, as I think you'll see from the interview, she's really just like a great person to talk to about rum. Definitely. And and one of the reasons we thought now would be the right time to have her on the podcast is that Privateer has been teasing this very exciting collaboration with a certain Italian bottler, uh, Velier, who uh, they've consistently put out some of the most sought after independent releases in all of rum. Uh, so Privateer is going to actually be the first American distillery that Velier has sourced rum from for a release. So it's, it's a really big moment for Privateer and I think even more broadly for the category of American rum altogether. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, the first sign of this, Privateer put out some pictures on Instagram of, of some of the bottles that were going to be used. And, you know, if you're familiar with Velier, you know, they have very distinctive bottle shape. And so the second I saw it, I was like, oh, man, this is this is going to be so cool. So that was a really fascinating aspect of the conversation, just getting to hear Maggie take us kind of behind the scenes of how that collaboration came together and, and what we should expect from it. Uh, but she also shared some really incredible stories with us. Uh, of just adventures in the world of rum. Like she told us about, you know, a trip she took to Steven Rimsburg's house with Richard Seale and Joy Spence and Kate Perry and all these other kind of luminaries of the rum world. Um, she also gave us a lot of deep dive details into privateers process and kind of um, sort of the unique environmental factors that work there that that make their rum different from uh, what you'll find in other places. So I'm really excited for people to hear this. I know our, you are too. So yeah. with that in mind, I think we should probably just cut straight to the interview. Let's do it. All right, so we are here with Maggie Campbell. Uh, Maggie, thanks again so much for taking the time to join us. And, um, you know, when I last saw you, it was in San Francisco at the California Rum Festival, and you were carrying around two very interesting bottles of privateer rum in your backpack. Um, One was the (laughs) bottled in bond rum, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit. Um, But the other one that I wanted to to be sure we talk about is the um, new unaged white rum expression that's made with 100% molasses and is kind of replacing the previous unaged expression that y'all had, which was a evaporated cane juice and boiled brown sugar 
space blend. And and the reason I bring it up is because uh, Wayne Curtis just published a really fantastic article that was just like a joy to read uh, for anyone who is interested in in rum. Um, it was for the Daily Beast, and it was kind of about the journey that you had to go through to find the right molasses for this rum. Um, so the first thing I want to ask is just like now that this is out in the open and people finally have the chance to taste it and stuff after all that work, how how does it feel to just kind of see all that unfold? And, and what is what has the reaction been like? Yeah, um, yeah, that piece by Wayne was so awesome. I was so excited that he was going to write it. You know, you're like, how do we make molasses interesting? And of course he does it. Um, Yeah, it's been really amazing to see the reaction. We are getting asked a lot about it. I think the thing most people are surprised about is we've been using it now for over a year. And we did our first test batch two years ago. Okay. And so it's been, I think people are always shocked and distilling like what a long road it is. Right. So yeah, when I joined the company seven years ago, um, one of the founder, Andrew Cabot's big missions was to have an impact on how sugar is bought and sold. Because for people who don't work in that world, it's it's a lot. It's big companies, big co-ops, lots of uh, political things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And really teeny tiny small growers trying to compete with these really large consolidated firms with a lot of global supply control of a major commodity. So of course it's really simple. Uh, (laughs) And so he really wanted to have an impact on sugar, sort of like how coffee has changed more, you know, single origin, direct trade, Mm -hmm. highlighting the people who are growing and cultivating it and what an art that is. And so that's always, from the first day I met him, been something on his agenda. And I think we were surprised how hard it was to get there. And so for the last seven years, you know, we would work with people we really care for a lot. Uh, you know, we definitely, my husband was, went on a tequila interchange project, which is supposed to, you know, they're an organization that supports ancestral tequila producers that are kind of facing a lot of pressure from, Mm. you know, the big boom in tequila and some of the bigger companies moving in. And Mm. he got to know a lot of small agave growers and they grow sugarcane like we make white rum to sell while their agave is aging, or in our case, our amber rum is aging. Right. Mm. And so we started talking to some growers there and different people there, but the scale was so small and a lot of them don't have access nor an ability to process the sugar at all. They often sell to large co-ops that do the processing for them. So that was like a year of research that ended up becoming kind of a dead end. And then we found an amazing biodynamic sugar producer that, you know, ends up making enough sugar for half of one of our fermentations in a year. (laughs) Uh, We found another small grower in Georgia, but again, just sort of an ability to get where we wanted to be. And then we would find some sugar producers, you know, in the U.S. that we really liked, but we didn't find that the molasses was of the quality we wanted because it had Mm. to be quality too. Mm -hmm. You know, for us, that has to be a huge part of it. So meanwhile, what Wayne gently touches on in that article, but he doesn't really cover is this whole seven years, we've been going up to see him every summer in Maine because my husband's from Maine. And so they get together and they do their Maine thing. They go hiking (laughs) through the forest and canoeing and sleep out on an island in the middle of a lake. And 
I like that uh, that's real, that, that people <laughs> in Maine actually do that, and it's not they, just in my head. They absolutely do that. We'll go to, like, an apple tree grafting conference. And <laughs> it's, like, amazing. They're hilarious together, the old Mainers. And uh, late at night, it will get out this Crosby's molasses, and it comes in a milk carton. Oh, and, wow. uh, and they'll pour it into their spoons and just eat it. And wow. my husband like grew up on this molasses. He loves it. And Wayne is like obsessed with this molasses. He loves it. It's a very Maine thing. Maine and mm-hmm. Canada are really, you can get it in New England, but really it's Maine and Canada and that particular corner of Canada. And so um, I was like, you know what? I'm going to call these guys and we're going to find out what this molasses is. I bet you it's just some big brand <laughs> repackaged and we've romanticized it. But let's just call and find out. And it right. turns out this molasses that we've been eating for years that has been right under our noses is like the molasses. So single origin mill, all volcanic soil, started by a brother and sister team, really great employee and environmental policies. It was amazing. So at the, after kind of getting in touch with them and finding out like, oh my God, this is our dream molasses. <laughs> that we have like this big cultural affinity for. Um, We started getting text sheets to make sure that it had the exact same content and style of the molasses we had used previously, which was all US molasses. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was great. And then we ordered a small container to do a test batch and we did a test batch and we let that age a year. And at that point we decided to switch over. And at that same point, you know, we decided uh, I think you you know in that article it had been mentioned that Richard Seal had come to visit. Right. And he, he had kind of, it was really cool. We He was always skeptical that we used crystallized sugar, as you mentioned, that real boiled brown sugar. Right. And the evaporated cane juice sugar. And um, he was always a little skeptical about it. He We talked to him about how ours was real boiled brown sugar. It wasn't white sugar dyed brown and mm-hmm. and how it was made. And he tasted the rums and he was actually, what I love about Richard is he's honest. And he was mm-hmm. like, you know what? I wanted to hate these, but actually like I see something interesting in them. But he said, <laughs> if I leave you today with one thing, I really, I want to ask you to make a white rum out of 100% molasses. And he says, you're very careful about how you buy your crystallized sugar but other people are not. And, you know, he kind of put this pressure on me. He was like, you're a leader in American rum. And when you do it, you say it's okay. And right. you've tasted some of these rums. You know it's not okay. Yeah. And right. I was like, damn, dad. <laughs> <laughs> Laying down the wall. Um. So uh, did that. And it was kind of amazing because we had that in tank resting. We were planning on releasing it alongside our silver reserve rum, but then the sugar company that we had gotten those crystallized sugars from had sold to another company a few years ago. We started to notice some changes. And then finally we noticed a change that we just decided we couldn't work with them anymore. And we happened to have already had this rum made and in tank. And we were like, this is our new direction. And, And now we're really excited to sort of, embody this New England rum ideal. We were always kind of like, we're doing our own thing and da da da. But now that we're 100% molasses, which feels really authentic to New England and New England rum, mm-hmm. you'll see we're coming out with New England white rum, right. New England bottled and bond. Um, we're really, really going for it. And it feels really good. And I think my team has never been more excited about the rum we're making, mostly just because we're over the moon about the sugar we're using. It's so good. 
Right. That's. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the first things that I noticed on the new bottle was that it said um, New England on this one, yeah. uh, which, which wasn't on the old one. And I was like, oh, interesting. So the <laughs> fact that it's that even the molasses, I, I know the obviously the, the sugar cane isn't grown in New England, but that the molasses is imported by a, a company that's in New England is, um, yeah. is a pretty happy uh, coincidence. Yeah, um, it was kind of cool. Um, earlier when we were just chatting, you had mentioned Bookstock and it yeah. was cool to see Dave Wondrich there. And he was like over the moon. He was like, I love Crosby's. Crosby's. I can't believe you guys are using Crosby's because he has a main connection through his family. Okay. And he was like, you're really New England now. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> That's Blessing awesome. from, you know, <laughs> the, the master. I, All right. <laughs> I have this mental picture of like you and your team, like putting a big carton of Crosby's into the still like a giant industrial size <laughs> that would be amazing like giant milk carton yeah oh I hope that distributors in Maine are listening to this right now and they're like oh my gosh we, we've got to get the people what they want this rum is using Crosby's it needs to be everywhere in Maine yeah well the the state of Maine purchased their own barrel of privateer so uh, there's oh, the state awesome. of Maine privateer barrel so half my distilling team is was raised in Maine so they're very, very proud of the state of Maine having their own custom barrel that they named. It's very cool. That's that's outstanding. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the Richard Seal note, because one of the things that stuck out to me in that article was, you know, Wayne described that Richard thought that it set a bad example for other distillers. And I was curious to hear, you know, why that was, because, um, you know, I, I keep track of a lot of uh, American rum distilleries and, you know, some of them do use some forms of crystallized cane sugar. And what I've come to learn is that there is a difference in what you're going to get out of a rum, depending on what type of crystallized cane sugar you use. It's not all just like they're pouring like big bags of domino sugar into their fermentations. Like if you talk to someone like like what y'all were doing, or if you talk to Karen Hoskin at Montagna, um, you know, what 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 they're putting into their fermentations is very different from that. And you actually do get rum characteristics out of it. Um, so it's it was interesting to hear that, you know, his point was essentially that not everyone is going to know that when they see right. it. Right. He's uh, like, you know, you can do something interesting with it mm -hmm. but that's not what everyone is doing and it was you know Which it really true. landed with me yeah. i was like i was like it it meant something to me that he looked at us that way and it meant something to me that i knew exactly what he meant when he said it and mm. yeah and like you said like if you gave this to someone who loves rum blind would they know it's rum and that's like definitely a mm -hmm. You know, does it smell and taste and have the characteristics of rum? That's something we talk about a lot in the uh, legal language around spirit. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, rum means a lot of things to a lot of people globally. It's why it's amazing uh, and one of the coolest spirits ever. But yeah, definitely, that is a question. And for me, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the crystallized sugars, I mean, sugar bless its heart, one of the easiest <laughs> things in the world to ferment, right? Especially crystallized sugar. I mean, compared right. to whiskey where I have to hit conversions. To create and, the sugar. Oh my gosh. And then you've got to like, you know, get the natural enzyme packet on the mm. barley to go into effect to break apart the sugar molecules so yeast can ferment them and you're inherently going to have unfermentables. And, and then in fruit, you have all these pectins and like, it's really complicated. 
when you're using the, the bags of the crystallized sugar, even our sugars, which are really minimally processed, they still ferment very efficiently and easily. And with the molasses, there is that little bit of interplay of the yeast really figuring out the mm. molasses mm -hmm. that I feel like has created another layer of flavor in the fermentation where, you know, they're interacting with it as opposed to, oh, simple food, got it done. There is this interplay that I, I do find a little more nuance and character with. Hmm. And I had a question kind of similar to that, too, in terms of uh, it's evident, obviously, that you know so much about the history of rum production and know so much about rum production itself and that you have a great respect for that. And yet you also I, I love the fact that everything I think I read about you, you explore and you have this great understanding of modern science and technology and how that's filtering into rum production now. So uh, my question was, how do you kind of balance those two things? And oh. And, and the methodology behind that, even if you have one. And I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. But. <laughs> well, thank you so much for saying that, because sometimes I feel like I make no one happy. Because uh, <laughs> they're, like, they're like, well, you should only use wildly hard scientific assays to make all your decisions. And I'm like, yeah, but like also, you know, spirit absorbs the character of everything it comes into contact with, even emotions, man. Right. And then, like, the people who are like, no, you have to put crystals under your barrels are like, <laughs> well, she uses hard science. She's not in tune with nature. So it's like, I feel like I make no one happy, right? Uh, well, I, I, think like, you make rum, I think you make rum drinkers. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I like to marry, you know, science and alchemy. And, you know, it's, we, if we only did what we had the hard science for, we wouldn't be fermenting because that, Scientific mm -hmm. discovery is pretty recent, you know, how fermentation works. Um, so I think that it's really important, sort of like, you know, hopefully any kind of artist, you get the technical background and you get the know-how and, you know, you understand these things. You know, my big thing that I love is yeast physiology. It's like my, one of my big continuing education things is continuing to take further and further study programs on that, you know, and I love to geek out with Richard on like, you know, mm -hmm. oh, we use POF positive because we want this and that and, you know, having the hard science and having the background so you know what it is you're doing. And then once you have that, really listening to your gut and, mm -hmm. and the harmonies and the humors and, you know, actually bringing <laughs> a little bit of the art to it. Um, you know, yeah. you start to develop that spidey sense. And I, I think one of the things that allows me to marry the two is, is actually my background in wine. You see this a lot in wine where they'll use modern techniques, but really honor ancestral practices. And yeah. you'll see them like have this very hardcore approach to striking their exact pH that they want in the wine. And then all of a sudden turning around and being like, no, you have to stir it clockwise 27 times or my grandma will die. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so it's like you get this really good marriage of both. And, and I think that's what gives, you know, you need, you need one for it to be correct, like technically correct right. as a spirit. And then you need the other for it to have character and not taste clinical you know, and we, we want it to taste like us and, and our personalities and reflect where it comes from. And, and that means not making it really generic or so tight that it, it doesn't reflect some of its nature. So it's, it's definitely, you know, my team has heard so many amazing <laughs> 
stories of, you know, learning from the style that Hubert set down at Germain Robin and how mm-hmm. mystical that is. And then also sort of my more technical background from, you know, attending school uh, and kind of marrying the two where I'll be like, well, okay, so here's the issue with soponification, da, 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 da. But also the spirit is just in tumult. It's emotionally upset when it goes through. <laughs> so, you know, they're very, very good at, at, at approaching it from both sides. And, um, you know, and some of the stuff, maybe we don't have hard, hard science for right now, but it doesn't yeah. mean we won't in 20 50 years so so yeah we definitely yeah try to strike a balance (laughs) i love that too i'm a big proponent of like even when it comes to education about like stem field science technology engineering math but also art and that one without the other it's it's not getting us there and i think that's a wonderful kind of way of putting it that you're marrying the two that was awesome thanks thanks yeah, um, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm interested in with your rum, we, we talked about how, you know, it says New England rum on the label. But, you know, I think some people look at that and they think, you know, oh, it's just in New England and they're making rum. But, you know, hearing you talk about this, there are clearly things in privateer rum that are only in there because of where you make it. Um, I, I'm curious from your perspective, like how how does your location and your environment uh, impact kind of what ends up in the bottle from a consumer perspective? Like when they pick up a bottle of privateer rum, what are some things they can they can look for that are, are kind of created by the conditions in which it's created? Oh, awesome. Thanks for asking that. I love it. Uh, <laughs> I'm kind of, you know, like I, I hate the overuse of this word, but obviously like a terroir dork. Uh And and I think terroir shows up in a lot of ways and coming from sort of the prairie in Colorado and getting to witness a lot of distilling there and then being West Coast. And that was my last distilling gig right before I came all the way over to the East Coast. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the North Atlantic Maritime is really distinct and, you know, at each sort of step. So in fermentation, it's very easy for us to temperature control our fermentation. Mm -hmm. Um, and that means a nice, long, slow fermentation, which is very distinct, um, in the rum world. That's not common. Mm. And so, you know, if you use instant yeast and ferment really fast when you're making a loaf of bread, it's not going to have the same character as when you do a nice, long, slow ferment, uh, that's going to get me get really rich and layered. So for us, that long, slow fermentation, then when we, um, distill, Uh, our stills run very different in the summer and the winter. So we're, you know, obviously we have very cold winters (laughs) and we actually have really hot summers. My friends in the Caribbean love to tease me because there's about three weeks in the summer where it's hotter in New England than it is in the Caribbean. Yeah. Because the Caribbean's Mm -hmm. temperate (laughs) all the time, but it actually spikes where we are. And so we make a lot of our white rum and our more delicate rums in colder winter months. And then mm-hmm. we'll make some of our richer, more pot distilled, heavier rums in sort of the warmer months. And so that's a way we definitely harness that climate and that character. From kind of like a chemical standpoint, why, why is it that those conditions impact things differently during fermentation? Um, so during fermentation, it's mostly our ability to temperature control. It would be really, really hard in the high, high, hot and humidity of the Caribbean to do temperature control all year round. It would mm-hmm. be really difficult. Tell me about it. My air conditioned bills. Right. It would require <laughs> a lot of equipment and a ton of energy. But for us, it's actually pretty easy. And then in distillation, the cold air surrounding the still really does change the way the 
spirit refluxes inside the still because the surface of the still is cooler. Uh-huh. And so uh, you get a lot more reflux and separation. So you can run. I feel like there's so much mythology that people just don't understand around like a still's design. But say we were running a four plate distillation. Mm-hmm. Um, if we ran that in the heat of summer versus the middle of winter, we would get a completely different end proof and a completely different character. Interesting. So it's not just, oh, still is shape A, therefore X, Y, Z. It definitely depends on, you know, how you're running it and in what conditions. Um, and so, of course, the barrel room. I think that's the terroir that I, I wish more people were writing about. They write a lot about, oh, well, it's the base ingredient or it's this or it's that. But barrel room terroir, you know, how humid it is. So for us, we have hot, humid summers and cold, dry winters. So we get that natural expansion and contraction of the wood grain mm-hmm. that most people are familiar with. But for me, more importantly, is when it's humid, there's a lot of moisture in the air and water is less interested in evaporating because there's already a lot of water in the air. Uh, So we lose more alcohol. So the proof goes down over summer. And if you think about, you know, what alcohol is evaporating, it's exactly the same as in distillation. When you first, first fire up a still, your smallest molecules turn into a vapor with the least amount of energy. So... When you're in the barrel room, what's evaporating? Your smallest molecules, meaning any residual volatiles you would have, as well as your most simple ethanol molecules, your least flavorful alcohol. If that alcohol had linked up with a bunch of flavor molecules, it would be much heavier and it would stay behind in the barrel. But you're basically evaporating off your simplest stuff. So what you're leaving behind is more long chain, heavy alcohols that are richer in flavor Um, and more complex because they have longer chains built on fat acids, which are essentially esters and lots of more flavor to them. So for us, that evaporation actually increases the character. And then when you swing around to winter and it's really cold and it's really dry, we lose water and the proof goes up in barrel. And then that swing up in barrel means the concentration of alcohol goes up. It becomes a stronger solvent. We pull a little more oak character out And it gives it a lot of structure. It makes it firmer on the palate. It has a nice drive down the center of the palate. And then, of course, as I mentioned in the summer, the texture gets much broader and softer. So, you know, we just went through and tasted some barrels in this sort of fall period right before we're going into winter and said, you know, this one is really fleshy and rich. It's almost mature, but let's wait till after winter when it gets a little more structure to it. And then I think it'll be perfect in June. So, Mm. you know, really harnessing the seasons and the seasonality. I have a feeling it's going to be a really cold winter. So I'm definitely already thinking about how that's going to affect our inventory and what will be available in spring and what will it be like. And, you know, this summer was relatively mild and it was really, really late. Um, We had 98 degrees in September, which does not happen. Um, and so I think that big delay meant not as much long lingering warm weather. So, you know, what's that mean for this spring when the barrels come out of a harsh winter? Are they, how many are going to be overly firm and need another summer to get a little more supple and how many will be just right because they really, really needed that firmness to drive down the palate. So for us, the, the barrel room terroir is really, really important. We don't temperature control. We only have a one heater 
in the corner that is in case the um, overhead sprinklers are going to freeze. It'll warm the room up to 45 degrees. <laughs> uh, so by the middle of winter, our fingers will be like aching when we're working in there. I bet. And then in the summer, it's just, it's brutally hot. So one of the things I also wanted to make sure we talk about that I'm really interested in learning more um, is uh, you and Privateer as well have both posted uh, on social media about an upcoming release with Velier, um, which to my knowledge, I have never seen them bottling something from another American rum producer. So I'd love to kind of hear you know what to what what we as consumers should expect from that partnership and and how it came about in the first place yeah oh i'm so excited about this i like i get like a little emotional and like teared up um <laughs> yeah no, that's awesome it's just like it's I, I remember coming to privateer and meeting andrew for the first time and him saying you know hey you know this is back in 2012 things are different <laughs> now but back in 2012 what was available broadly on the U.S. market wasn't what's available now. And he said, you know, the vast majority of rum sold in the U.S., and this is still true, you know, is from two brands, and they want to be the most affordable bottle. And, you know, if I wanted to make a premium whiskey, I'd have to battle these million-dollar historic companies. And if I wanted to make a premium vodka, talk about major marketing budgets. But if we want to make a really nice rum, and all we focus on is making the best product possible and we know we'll always be more successful if it tastes great, I think we can make one of the best rums in the world. And I have to tell you, I probably physically rolled my eyes at him. Because I was like, there's no... <laughs> well, everyone says that, right? I'm like, there's no rum from New England that's going to be better. Right. I'm like, like this... This has no history. Like it has tons of history, but it doesn't have like living history. Uh, you know, it's very cut off at the knees post prohibition. And right. mm. I, I was like, I was like, I don't know, dude. Like I could feel him feeling me hesitate. And mm-hmm. you know, we still have a, a long way to go. And we are still an incredibly young company and we don't have an old, old, old inventory yet, and we don't have decades of experience yet. But the fact that this is happening and and I get to be on the shelf next to my heroes who I think set the bar for for quality and passion. Like I'm like really over the moon about it. I never thought something like this could happen. So yeah, um, you know, a couple of the Velier team had come to visit a couple years ago, um, including Kate Perry, who most people in the US will be familiar with mm-hmm. uh, in the rum world, in the geeky rum world. And <laughs> they got really excited about what we were doing and they kind of shared some of it uh, with more and more of the rum family. And then, you know, I think Richard then came to visit after kind of hearing it was worthwhile to visit. And, and, you know, then he started talking about us more. And then um, Luca just got really excited about, you know, he, he loves to find great rum from anywhere and he doesn't have a snobby bias. I'll admit I had a really snobby bias when Andrew was like, we could be one of the best rums in the world. Right. I was like, whatever, dude, I was such a snob. But Luca was really like so honest and, and open to tasting. And so I, uh, I knew I was going to be over in Europe and, you know, I knew I had a couple days. So he invited me over and we tasted some rums and he just, in his very particular insightful way, just had a very clear vision of what he wanted and how he wanted it to come to him. And, 
and what we could do together. And I just could not believe his faith and excitement in what we were doing. I was really hoping he would be like, maybe interested in like doing one tiny thing together. Right. Um, but I will say there will be a few releases rolling out uh, together and it's been really cool. Like, you know, you'll, when you ask producers how distributors are, it's not always like the most flattering response you get, (laughs) but working with him is such a joy and it's such a collaboration and he's so invested and he cares so much. You know, we were just bouncing around ideas for a name, um, just yesterday with his team and we like came up with one together and it was awesome and it was fun. And, you know, they're just excited about good things and, they have been the easiest and most honest business people we've worked with in a long time. And uh, <laughs> yeah, great. it's just been really, really easy to work with them. So yeah, we, uh, I think you might've seen the Habitacion bottles online. Yes. Uh, so that'll definitely and be the, the other ones as well. Yeah. The, uh, the darker bottles, which mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm really, I never, I never thought that would be something we'd be rolling out with him because those, hold some of his biggest treasures and so his belief in us like it really meant a lot to me and like you know when you make it all day and you're sitting in the distillery all day and it's what you do all day you kind of like forget and and so seeing his response to our work in that way like traveling to such a special place and being so far away from home and, and seeing it really have this life outside of the distillery it was it was really exciting to every single one of us at Privateer. So we couldn't be prouder to be working with him. You know, he's, he's so passionate and so dedicated and it's so easy to misunderstand him because you, you don't get much time with him. You don't get to see him at too many places. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you do, he's always doing the showman thing. So getting to like sit with him in his home and have a real conversation about how he feels about all these things in the world is really, really important. You know, I got to, I got to kind of listen in on a conversation he was having about there's some strikes going on in Haiti and someone Mm. was saying, are you going to get your containers of rum? And he said, you know what? I stand with the people of Haiti. If we'll get our rum when we get our rum. Like it was so cool. Like you just don't hear people say that. And Mm. it really just, that is who he is. Um, And it's so special to see that. And I'm so excited to be, like I said, just rolling some stuff out with him and and to be in that Habitacion bottle with so many amazing people who've been dedicated to this for so long. It it feels really, really cool to, to be able to show up in the, in the world in that way. So yeah, I was really flattered that he would be interested because you still, every day we meet people who say, Oh, rum in America, North America. It's a strange one. So yeah, I think we're the only American, not just North American rum. Uh, right go out through him in those in those types of releases so yeah it's yeah. exciting yeah i mean to be featured you know alongside like I'm, I'm imagining you back in that conversation you had with andrew where you talked about kind of rolling your eyes um to compare that to now being bottled alongside you know like worthy park and foursquare and uh hampton and all these just like amazing rum distilleries um is 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 really cool and i'm, I'm really excited to see what that all looks like when it comes to fruition yeah. um one of my favorite moments was uh you know my production teams heard me talk about it a lot and we're excited but i actually like pulled up 
like I'm the one who goes to Rumfest and sees right. bottles and tastes them. Mm-hmm. But uh, I pulled up the website for them, the LEA website, and showed them like, oh, this is the Hapapassi online. Right. And their jaws just like yeah. dropped. They like, they could not <laughs> believe it. They like, they lost it. They didn't quite grasp what it was we were doing right. until I was like, look at these. And they were like, oh my God. So that was like really exciting for them to to see and to see them go through that was really exciting for me. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience because I was I was mentioning the this upcoming, you know, that, that y'all were doing something with Vellier in a, a newsletter. And I went to Vellier's website just to make sure that like, I, I was like 99% sure no other American producer just had been, you know, uh, had partnered with them on any kind of release. And I was just looking at, at that same, you know, display of, of their releases on their website and just being like, wow, like Privateer is going to be here. That must be so cool. It's, um, it's really this. cool. And and it's been cool how many producers who are not a part of LEA and not a part of Habitacion have actually reached out and told us how excited for us they are. Yeah. And yeah. like, like, this is amazing. Congratulations. Like, we never thought we'd see the day. <laughs> like, yeah. It's been really, really cool that like they're just as excited for us because they know what it means to someone who's, you know, we're tiny and we're new. Um, right. And it just, it means a lot. Yeah. And you're opening the doors for, for so much other American rum and, and you're leading the way. Oh, so thanks. That's, I hope that's so. awesome. And, and, you know, you mentioned kind of also like the daily grind almost, I guess you would call it, of, you know, being involved in the process and day in and day out. And I'm kind of interested in leading that into uh, your kind of philosophy that you've talked about so much, which is that elevage. Uh, and that not only in your rum making, but also as a general way of life, but also, you know, in that way of talking about dealing with the daily grind, because no matter what we all do, we all do something different. We don't all get to make rum, but we do have the daily grind. Uh, and I found that uh, that an interesting kind of uh, concept, that philosophy. So I was hoping to ask you a little bit more about that. And uh, for those of us like myself who don't have a lot of understanding of what it means, if you could kind of give us a little bit more information on that concept and how you apply it to what you do. Yeah, elevage. So um, this is a concept I come across all the time in wine, and it, it there's no exact English translation, of course, uh, but it's sort of this this idea of rearing something to to bring it up in a style. And you know, so for us in rum, it means you know raising the rum and hopefully imparting in it uh, what you believe in. And then the other side of the coin of that is once you release it into the world, once it's grown. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no longer yours and it has its own life. And, and I think those two things are really important, especially, you know, you guys are so passionate and thank you for your work connecting with newer North American rum distillers. You know, there's a lot of people who are new to rum that, that aren't always aware of like the daily ritualistic, repetitive monk like work (laughs) of you hook the hose to the pump. You hook the other hose yeah. to the other side of the pump. Take you a hook it to the still. You open the <laughs> valve. You watch the flow meter. You turn off the pump. You rinse out the pump. Like, yeah, there's a lot of daily ritualistic monk-like work that is just day after day after day, yeah. and it requires a lot of soft focus for eight to twelve hours, and it's a very particular skill. And it's the exact opposite of being a celebrity distiller, like which is I think sometimes why some people get into rum is they're like, oh, 
you know, I was Don Draper, but now I'm John Wayne. And I'm like, actually, you're a glorified tax accountant who gets really sweaty. Um, and we'll get really into what type of work boots you get and we'll like have a fight in a bar over your work boots. Like this is who you are now. Um, and so that's one half of it. And then the other half of it is the idea that once it goes out in the world, it's not really yours anymore. Like, I just want people to enjoy it. You know, we're not the rum police. You know, people always ask, like, are you mad when someone mixes it with Coke or whatever? I'm like, man, are they having a good time? Like, it's their rum now. And right. I think sometimes when people get really into distilling in the new phase, that's the hardest part to reconcile is like, well, it's not really yours anymore. Like, you got to hear what people say about it and you have to listen Mm. to how they drink and enjoy it and what they like about it and what they don't. And, yeah. you know, like you're literally the only person who doesn't pay for your product. So like you need to be in the service of the people who end up with it in their hands. So Elevage dealing with the, how do we bring it up? What is this daily work and how do you stay dedicated to that daily work and engaged with that daily work? Um, and the mindset it takes to to do that gentle rearing and guiding and mm -hmm. maturing and bringing it to fruition um, is a big thing at Privateer. And everyone feels very connected to the work and very invested into the work. And we we structure the work so that what they do really matters. You know, we are not overly automated. Our stuff could be way more automated than it is. But I don't want it to be because I want them to have to watch that tank so they have to turn off the pump when it's full so that they're engaged and they're there and they're, yeah. they're hand stirring the tank with a oak roab and gently folding the water into the spirit instead of, you know, putting it on a cycle by clicking mm -hmm. a button. And, mm -hmm. you know, we do a lot of handmade stuff so that they do stay really engaged in the work and they, they see that show up in the end spirit and then the thing you can't really teach someone is the like delayed gratification of distilling. <laughs> right. Like it's the, the type of person who's willing to like build something from scratch and know that it's going to be a year. And then like, there is the little stuff, like at the end of the day, you stand back and you look at a tank of rum and you're like, I made that. I made that today. That's yeah. a real thing in the world that I like put there, you know, right. with the millions of hands who, help me along the way by yeah. building our still and harvesting our cane and building our hoses, et cetera, et cetera. But like, Oh, that's what I did today. Right. There's a thing that I put into the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Our most recent distiller is very young when they joined us, they were 22 and they said, you know, I'm just really sick of piecing together part-time work. I am a receptionist at, you know, a physical therapy place and I just feel like I spend the whole day on Facebook trying to pass time. And I just want to feel like I literally did anything with my day. Right. And I'm like, you're hired. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because awesome. like, that's the type of thing you have to have. And, you know, I kind of joke about the movie Arrival. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's like a sci-fi movie. I was, about to I was about to bring this up because you referred to it in another interview and it stuck out to me immediately of, of being being a distiller is like kind of being unstuck in time. I love that. Totally that is. Idea. Yeah, because you have to. You have to be very willing to know that that thing you made today I swear to you, it will be something someday. And it might be four years down the road with a bottled and bond, but, you know, or even later, but it will be something someday. And yeah, everything yeah. we worked with for the Vellier project, which we were just uh, working on today, we were tasting the tank and evaluating. 
you know, are things that we worked on years and years ago. So you're tasting a distillate uh, of mine that is a distiller I'm not anymore. I'm a much better distiller now. Uh, <laughs> so it's like you're tasting this, oh, I used to be that distiller, but that's not who I am now. And, and what will wow. the stuff I do today be in two years or six months or 10 years? And right. yeah, this, you know, tasting, um, especially, yeah, just different, different years and different styles and who you were, especially, you know, with us, because so much of it is not automated, I can taste a cask and pretty much tell you who distilled it, you know, who is that person and who were they at that time and, and what was going on and, oh my gosh, the weather must've been so hot the day you guys (laughs) distilled this. And yeah, it's just this weird time box of, yeah, being very unstuck in time in many places at once when you're in a distillery and looking at the work you're doing. So you you were telling us earlier about the experience, you know, of Luca Gargano, you know, kind of talking to you about your rum and everything. And um, I scroll through your Instagram sometimes and just pretend that I get to be in some of the rum nerd uh, heavenly places that you're able to visit. Um, And there are two specific uh, things you posted about within the last year that I wanted to bring up specifically because um, they both seemed so amazing. Uh, and one of them was you took a trip to E&A Shear in Amsterdam um, and posted a, a ton of amazing photos of, you know, everything that's going on behind the scenes there. And the other one was your visit to Stephen Rimsberg's house in New Orleans, which I think was during Tales of the Cocktail. But you were there with Joy Spence from Appleton. And I think Richard and Gail Seal were there. Um, I think Kate Perry was there. There were like all these rum luminaries in the room. Um, so I wanted to throw out those two moments. And you can pick either one because they're both fascinating to me. But I'm curious, just what do you remember about those experiences and what were kind of like the, the signature moment from either one? Oh, man. Yeah, it's, it's a tough it's choice. Been an amazing year. I'm very fortunate that my boss like really encourages like continuing experiences and like he's never like write me a report on what is the ROI or anything like that. <laughs> he's like keep feeling your gut. It's important. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I would say the Steve Remsburg one really stands out. He's just such an, an amazing man. And, you know, I was there like with Ian Burrell who – he and I had a really old previous sort of very brief interaction about, you know, someday you should taste with Steve. And there I was. And, and it was so amazing. I was already so excited to go. I was so thrilled. And then I walk in the front door, kind of like walk my way back to the bar. And Joy Spence is like there cracking open a bottle. I didn't know she was going to be there. That's and so I'm cool. like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, I'm <laughs> so excited. But the thing I kind of love most about, I think, the picture you're referencing is I'm sitting on a um, seesaw horse. Uh-huh. I don't uh-huh. know if you noticed I, that. I, I, I did. I did. <laughs> so I sent that to my boss and I was like, I had one shot to impress Joyce Spence. And let me <laughs> tell you, she thinks I'm a real professional. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, there was just this children's toy laying around and we were doing this like family photo. And I right. was like, this will be adorable. It'll be family-like. Uh, so I hope that someday when they write and buy it in a hundred years and that photo gets put in there, they're like <laughs> Joy Spence and some random drunk lady on a, uh, on a seesaw horse. Uh, <laughs> I thought it really tied the whole, the whole photo together. Yeah, so I'm just on a rocking horse. Don't worry about it. It's fine. So yeah, I, I kind of loved that. It was like, to me, that just speaks to what 
a casual, chill community day it was. Like, we were all so comfortable with each other and so at home and, you know, sitting around to Steve's stories, everyone is silent. You can hear a pin drop. Like, everyone is so captivated by, you know, his experience and his journey and, and it's, it's so cool to hear about what he was doing. But we all feel like, you know, we do feel like family. So I can be the goofy person riding a rocking horse. And, you know, it's just natural because no one's so stuck up and no one's trying too hard and yeah. no one's trying to be that person. And, you know, as someone who really wanted to be in the whiskey industry and tried for a long time, like, I don't think I would have been riding a rocking horse in a lot of those rooms. Um, and particularly when I was, you know, in Brandy and doing cognac style distillation, I don't think that could have happened either. It really is specific to rum that, that people really can just be dancing in the bar, like having a great time. Like it's just not something I saw in a lot of other spirit categories. So for me, that was really special. At Sheer, I just loved like sharing the technical information. Mm. Um they have these really adorable stands where they rest the ends of their hoses because obviously you don't want your hoses on the ground. Mm -hmm. Of um, course not. And I, and I shared with them, I was like, oh yeah, no, there's these collars you can put on them. And they were like, oh. And it just <laughs> reminded me that like we do the same thing. Like right. they know way more than I'll ever forget. <laughs> but like they're so smart and they know everything. But also like- Not about that though. But yeah, like we know what each other does, you know, it's not sure. a mystery and, and we yeah. get it. And they had this really cool wall that was just a grate so that the room could breathe and vent uh, vapor. And I thought that was really cool. And also mm -hmm. like the cellar workers just had really freaking awesome workwear. Like they had, and they were all like staff workwear. So they were all sheer branded and they had these jackets. And I was like, oh my gosh, these jackets are amazing. I want some for my team. Like they were just really amazing. And I was picturing like jumpsuits when you first started talking right, about it. Right. They, they kind of have like these underlying jumpsuits and then yeah, these really nice fleece kind of type jackets that just looked so easy to move and work in, but also like just waterproof enough, but flexible mm -hmm. enough. I was very impressed. Uh, so yeah, it was just, uh, it was just amazing to see all their old vats and what they do. And, and it's so different. It's so different than what we do at Privateer, but you know, also we can talk about our hose ends and how we do hose end maintenance. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the upcoming release of Velier and we've talked a lot about the past of Privateer. So I guess the next logical question and as you mentioned this is something that takes place over years in terms of the the product and how long it takes to develop can you tell us a little bit about what's next for privateer and by what's next i mean and way down the line yeah um we've been putting down a lot more pot distillate um we have found that our more matured pot like double pot distilled rums have kind of garnered their own little following so we've added a lot more emphasis on that one of my managing distiller, Dylan, who does a lot of work in the cellar with me, um, he and I together, we put together a really special blend of rums that we're going to leave to mature over the winter. And so that'll be something uh, someday. <laughs> 
Um, but really, I think a big thing for us is that we're so lucky that, a, like, you know, a good small group of rum geeks are interested in what we do. And it's been really hard to get them rum because of the distribution laws in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So we've been working a lot more with, you know, partners like in California when you and I were there, K&L had purchased two barrels themselves. Right. Um, and so trying to do more stuff like that so we can get rum to more markets so more people can try our stuff even if we don't have like massive inventories to like go to 50 states. I mean, we're in two states. So um, <laughs> with regular distribution, we're in two states. I'm hoping Florida is going to be the third. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so um, I think in the next year, I'm going to be traveling, you know, quite a bit. I'm really excited. It looks like up at Rumba on the uh, Pacific Northwest, we're going to do a really cool colonial New England rum tasting. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so that'll be on social media soon. That'll be early next year. And uh, and doing a lot more events like that. Um, and then, yeah, in time to come, I think Bottled and Bond will be a bigger role. And, you know, uh, continuing to do a lot of the political work that we do as far as, you know, working with our local rum regulations here in the U.S., but then also supporting, you know, really authentic producers globally because we're all kind of in that same boat of, you know, wanting to protect rum and protect its reputation and, you know, doing a little more work with Guardians of Rum um, it's been really cool to be the North American member uh, of that community and be included in, in what it is they're doing. So yeah, kind of just keeping that stuff, but more aged inventory and hopefully mm-hmm. expanded distribution uh, once we have the rum uh, is going to be the big push for us. And then I actually have a big meeting tomorrow. We have an idea for something that would become you know, a standard offering from us. Um, It's an aged rum concept. And so uh, we're meeting tomorrow to really think about that. And I imagine that'll be a spring release of the first sort of volume or chapter of of what that will be. So, you know, it would be, you know, our Navy Yard rum is is one of our core things. It's it's how it is. Mm -hmm. It's always a single cast, cast strength, new American oak rum. But we're thinking of releasing something else that's an aged rum that might be a blend of different styles of our own distillates like pot and column, old oak, new oak, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a different riff on that. That would be more broadly available and definitely like approachable. Well, you've got our endorsement for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when, when you have a meeting like that, like what, what is it like? Like how many people are in the room and how do you go about making a decision like that? I'm always curious how, how a distillery approaches that. Yeah, no, I think the idea of like how these things come to life, it's such an important conversation. I would say it usually starts with Andrew Cabot, the CEO and founder and myself. And we kind of see, you know, what is something that, people want to see from us that we can do well. It has to be both those things. It has to be something people actually want (laughs) and be something we can do really well. We get asked all the time for spiced rum. It's just not the thing that I'm going to be able to do the best because it's not my passion. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. let's let someone else who can like really do that well do that. That's not our thing, but we get asked for it all the time. So it's sort of, you know, how how is it something that people have a need for we're fulfilling their needs, we're in their service, and it makes sense for us to do. So we kind of sat down and said, you know, we're really looking for a rum that's price approachable, you know, a standard proof. It's not cask strength. It's more like, you know, 90-ish, 
aged rum that like people can approach and try and enjoy. It's mixable, it's sippable, it's all these things. And now that we have more older stock, we can make it, you know, rich and, and mm. interesting at like a good value. We always want everyone who like tries privateer to be like, oh man, I can't believe it's not more expensive. I'd say the number one comment we get from like bigger, more established brands trying to give us really good advice is they're like, raise your prices. And for me, I, I love that. I love that. Hopefully people try it and they're like, it's worth it. Cause I, I don't know about you guys. I have plenty of experiences where I try some weird esoteric spirit that might be a small scale product and it's expensive. And it, I'm disappointed I bought oh, it. For sure. Like, I, I mean, the, <laughs> I, I think it's it, it has to be doubly challenging doing that as, you know, kind of in the quote unquote craft spirits world. Um, because I think that's one of the biggest criticisms people have a lot of times is it's too expensive, you know? Yeah, I think um, too often cost is high and experience is low. And so we kind of want to be the opposite of that. We want a really trained, good staff that has like a pretty reasonable price for what you end up buying. It has to make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we really want to make something that's like, it's tasty and delicious. It's aged. And like, yeah, you feel like, yeah, I love that. It's great. And can you believe it's only, you know, X amount of dollars? That's what we want to hear. Uh, so for us, Andrew and I'll have a conversation where we say, you know, I, I really think people are kind of looking for this and this is something we could do. And, you know, Navy Art is cask strength and it's new American oak. It's bold and it's, it's firm on the palate. And it's like, it's like drinking a single barrel bourbon. It's a lot. And, you mm-hmm. know, and it's not super affordable because it is a single cast cast strength mm-hmm. selection. Yeah. Um, so what's something where people who want an introduction to privateer who might have read, you know, an article here or, you know, a family member might have mentioned it. Like, how are they going to get their first introduction to an H privateer rum? And so we'll start talking about that. And then I take it to the production team and we really go over like the realities of making something like that. And in this case, about a week ago, we went over and sort of reviewed our inventories and our stocks and where we see where we want to be in a few years. And what does that mean we need to be making today? What blending components can we use and are available to do? Like if we want to make a batch this spring, it obviously has to be stuff that's already many years old. What do we need to be making today to continue this? And do we have enough of these sort of blending components to get us through that? What, what can we build at what size of what character with what we have? Right. And what do we need to start making to make sure we continue that um, availability? And then, so the meeting tomorrow will be the first real meeting where it actually becomes like, maybe this is something that's really happening. And it'll be our VP of sales, who's Kevin, he's amazing. Dylan, our managing distiller and myself. And we will come up with sort of a vision for what this is and how it works practically and an idea of, you know, what is a possible name? Do we want it to be, you know, like a batch, like batch one, batch two, mm-hmm. batch three, you know, do we want it to be heavily consistent? Do we want to make it like more of like a chapter or a serial or a lot number where like we might say, Hey, it starts here, but in six months, like maybe there's a little more pod distillate in it. How, how varied do we want it to be? How yeah. consistent do we want to be? How do we communicate that on the label? Cause I think it's really important that customer expectation is there. Definitely. Um, I think for us, if it's like a batch number or a lot number, it's going to be very consistent. Whereas if it was like issue number seven, you know, it would be like (laughs) a book with chapters or like a serial release, sort of like a, it's really funny. We were talking about this with our lead distiller, Pete, and his whole thing is like quality, quality, quality. He's the one who's 
supposed to make sure no one ever drifts or gets lazy or unengaged at work. Mm-hmm. That's his only assignment is to make sure like <laughs> everyone, like every time does everything to their best of their ability, best practices. And he's like, Oh, you know, like seven pillars of wisdom that was released as a serial. And I'm like, of course, you're the one mentioning <laughs> these super long, really difficult, challenging memoirs of Lawrence of Arabia as an yeah. example of our, of our new rum product. So, uh, so yeah, tomorrow's meeting will really be the meeting where we're like, this is how we envision like the concept of what the bottling will communicate. You know, this is how we want to communicate that it's either batches or is it going to be a series where everything's different or. Yeah. Is it going to be this or is it going to be that? And and this is sort of the price point we think we'd need to cover our expenses. And this is sort of our projected how much we could actually make and how far we could expand it. And at that proof, how much volume we would have and sort of giving that. And then we'll present that to Andrew. And then Andrew is such a great entrepreneur. He'll really be able to hone in on what works about it and really push us to think through the things that, you know, hey, I don't want to do another serialized issued thing that's different all the time. Like that's, that creates a lot of exhaustion around like people who are just trying to grab mm-hmm. something to mix the bar. We want bartenders to feel like this is going to be the same every time they buy it and they're going to be able to put it on their menu and it's not going to change, you know? And so he'll be able to like really hone in on like what it is people need and how we need to adjust to meet that. And then we'll kind of put together the final concept as a big theme. It's it's so amazing. I, th- I think the average consumer, you know, they, they hear a new expression or something like that is coming out from a distillery and it's like, oh, cool. Um, I'll be interested to try that. But you, you don't think at all about how many different people and how many different decisions and, and all that stuff you just described, how much thought has to go into that in order for something to um, come out and not only, you know, taste great, but also, you know, be commercially successful as well. Yeah. Um, After we make sort of a, a conceptual bottle or like if we do a test distillation, we'll we'll take it out to the bartenders we feel are the ideal audience. And then I have about four or five bartenders I know will always tell me the truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, because like it's hard being the head distiller because they'll be like, it's nice. And I'm right. like, no, like yeah. actually yeah. tell me. Them and Richard Seal, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> Richard is a blessing. And he is, he's so fantastic. And you know what? It's so funny because I he's often portrayed as like intense and scary and critical, but then you'll have these like really kind of cool moments with him. One of my, you mentioned earlier, Instagram photos. One of my favorite Instagram photos is I have a photo of him at Rumfest in London and we're at this ridiculous mini golf bar and Ian Burrell has brought him this really old bottle of his that he had and he holds it in his hands and he's just laughing at it. I just snapped a picture of it. And as soon as I snapped that picture, he said, when I bottled this, I thought, man, this is the greatest packaging ever done. <laughs> and of course, like, it's very dated, silly packaging. Right. Yeah. And like, it's just cool that we all, like, we could all just be like, oh, man, we're ridiculous. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, when you, I love thinking about him creating a product and what is he thinking and what are their conversations. But, uh, but yeah, no, we have a bar here called Shore Leave in Boston, and Ryan Lott's the bar manager. He is my, like, go to honest perfect balance of cheerleader and total shade like (laughs) hey this is great also don't do this great right like really honest such a great taster adore him um so we go to him a lot for original concepts and ideas and one of the things we just did with him it'll be released this spring in the middle of sort of this whole 
we're going to make all our rum from molasses now. We wanted to try out a bunch of different distillates. So we made a bunch of white rum expressions with different yeast blends and, uh, you know, column and then mm, pot yeah. and plates. And we held them all aside, obviously, in their separate little containers, a bunch of little series of uh, stainless steel tanks. And he came up and he tasted them and he selected the exact ratio he wanted for his exact dream white wow. rum for making his drinks at his bar. And like, what is the white rum he wants to work with? The exact proof he wanted, the exact blend he wanted. And yeah, so we made that for him. And that might be something we do more and more of because so many bartenders, they really want the rum that's right for their drinks. Right. And that was so much fun to have him in the cellar and tasting and saying, you know, I want 20% this, 5% that. And mm-hmm. it was great. Right. Well, um, thank you again so much for taking the time to do this, Maggie. Um, and before you go, we have an optional one minute segment um, that I will let John tell you about now if you're up for it. <laughs> so we uh, we did this with uh, Eric Kay and it, it went really well and we thought it was really fun to do with everybody. But the idea is we do one full minute of like rapid fire questions. And so I don't know if you've ever heard of like a segment like this that a lot of people have done on radio and whatnot. But the idea is you'll get proposed a, a quick kind of this or that type of question and you just kind of come out with a quick answer and it's not really too serious in any way but we do think it's fun so yeah it sounds uh, great all right so we ready all right we're gonna go three two one start neat or on the rocks neat okay column pot or blend blend okay pina colada or mai tai pina colada okay pina colada or a daiquiri daiquiri all right who's your favorite person to share a bottle of rum with Wayne Curtis. When you can't have rum, are you going to reach for a bottle of scotch or cognac? Scotch. If you had to go with a cognac, or would you go with an Armagnac? Armagnac. Ooh. You grew up on the West Coast, and now you're on the East Coast. Is it East Coast or West Coast? East Coast. (laughs) All right. (laughs) No hesitation. (laughs) Salem or Boston? Boston. Mm -hmm. Is it referred to as Boston or Beantown by you? Boston. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Marvel or DC? DC. Okay. Woo. I know. Right. Don't, I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Pilgrim or Baldwin? Baldwin. Ah, of course, those are the names of the stills in Privateer. All right. How about for other hobbies, glass blowing or beekeeping? Oh, that's a hard one. Beekeeping. <laughs> All right. That's, you... that's it. That's oh, no. All right. All right. Actually, I gave you 15 extra seconds because it was going so well. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I I miss glass blowing, man. I miss it a lot. Awesome. Well, thank you again for doing that. That was very fun and very cool. And we really appreciated it and your time. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. And anytime I can come back and do this again, I'd be happy to. Yeah, definitely. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Maggie. Take care. Bye. Okay, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Rumcast. Uh, if you want to learn more about Privateer, they've got a ton of info about their rums and processes on their website. That's privateerrum.com. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram, Privateer Rum. And as we mentioned during the show, I definitely would recommend giving Maggie a follow as well. Her Instagram is at halfpintmaggie. That's two Gs, at halfpintmaggie. Yeah, and if you enjoyed this episode of the Rumcast, uh, John and I would definitely love to hear from you. So you can find us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, give us a review, give us some feedback. Um, all of that stuff will be a huge help because we're just getting started and we want to make sure we're, you know, we're putting stuff out that you enjoy. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. We're the Rumcast on both of those. So yeah, hope to see you there.